So it depends on, do you want to be hands-on or hands-off? Do you want to feel like you have control over the property or do you totally trust a syndicator? There's pros and cons to everything. And from my perspective, I believe in diversification. I like having my single family homes because I think everybody's going to need them. People are going to need the multifamily, right? Mm -hmm. We know that that's true. And people are going to need commercial, different kinds of commercial that's changing, right? So kind of take a look at the markets that you're interested in. I like control over my single family homes and my construction company. I also like diversification that I can get in syndication. This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show. The show that will help you escape the Wall Street casino and build wealth on Main Street by investing in real estate. I'm your host, Taylor Lote, and today our guest is Monika Sawyer. And today we're learning about her strategy for investing in executive rentals and how that strategy helped her and her husband retire early. We're digging into how they acquired their first rental, how they built up their portfolio, and also how they ride out the ups and downs of the real estate market. They experienced the Great Recession and the real estate crash in California. And we go through how they dealt with that crash, both mentally and then strategically with their portfolio and so much more. A lot of great knowledge in this one, especially for those of you who would prefer to invest in higher end rentals. Once again, I'm your host, Taylor Lote. I'm a real estate investor and I focus on multifamily and self-storage properties. If you'd like to learn more about potentially investing with us on a future deal, just go to investwithtaylor.com, fill out the form and schedule a call, and we'll look forward to speaking with you soon. If you're an Apple Podcast user and you enjoy the show, please take a moment and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars if you don't mind, you guys. I appreciate that so much. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcast ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys, that gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street Casino along with us. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. Once again, our guest today is Monika Sawyer. We're learning about her strategy for investing in executive rentals, high-end rentals. She's going to tell you all about it. Without any further ado, here we go. Monika, thank you so much for joining us today. For our listeners out there who don't know about you and what you do in real estate, can you tell us about yourself and how you got to where you are today? Yeah, thank you, Taylor, for having me. This is so pleasure. much fun. Yeah. So actually, my real estate story started before I was born. <laughs> okay. My, par- <laughs> my parents got an arranged marriage in India wow. and barely knew each other, came to the United States with $200 in their pocket and wanted to start a new life for themselves here. And and. My dad had heard, even in India, that the golden ticket to wealth in the United States was to buy real estate. And so they saved up all of their money and bought a primary residence where I was born. And then once I was born, you know how parents are, right? They, they're filled with all this hope and excitement and joy. And they were like, we're going to make this amazing life for our daughter. And so they started saving their nickels and dimes again. And it's so funny, right? My mom was a doctor. But she would like sew all the cushions for her sofa or the <laughs> curtains, right? She was saving like every nickel and dime and doing all this stuff. And when, when I was three, they bought their first rental property. So then they also had a couple more kids. Fast forward 15 years. Now I'm 18. They paid for my college education with real estate. Nice. And they did the same for both of my sisters. So I had seen my whole life what real estate could do financially, right? But I had no 
interest. Like I literally had my heels dug in and I was not going to do real estate because (laughs) I had also seen, and this is what so many people hear about real estate. I had seen the grief that it had given my dad, right? The tenants, the toilets, the termites, you name it, right? We know with that feet, we've heard the stories and that was my dad. And so I did not want that in my life. And for those of you listening, from my perspective, real estate, especially if you're looking at passive income, is the long game. You're going to be in for a long time, right? You, I, In my perspective, you kind of marry the business, right? Well, if you're going to do that, I didn't want it to make me miserable, <laughs> right? So I was like, no, thank you. So I graduated from college during a recession and I couldn't find a job. And I was stressed out. I couldn't figure out how I was going to do this whole adulting thing. And I was sitting with my dad talking to him about it. And this one night we were sitting across the kitchen table and he said something that changed my life. He said, you know, Monica, everybody has stress. Everybody has fear and everybody has money problems. Do you want poor people money problems or do you want rich people money problems? And my first thought was, rich people have money problems? Like, really? It's, 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 it's true. He was right? right. They're good. They're better problems, I'll just yes. say. But, but they're still there, right? And so I decided in that moment that, okay, if that's really what life is about, I would sort of check out this whole real estate thing. So I started saving my nickels and dimes. I had a very low-paying job, kind of duplicated my mom and dad's story. I got engaged, and for my husband's and my wedding, we asked for money for a down payment for a house, nice, which we got. And so we bought our primary residence, and so the story continues, right? So we got our primary residence. Eventually, it appreciated. We used the equity in that home to now buy another home for ourselves. We rented out this old one, and then we bought another equity line, and then we bought a whole bunch of houses. Anyway, so that's how the story goes. What's interesting about that is that as we rented out old houses, we were renting to people that were like us. We had just lived there, right? And both of us were executives in the Silicon Valley. We both had corporate jobs. So my my specialty is executive houses. But the reason that started is because I wanted to be doing business with. I wanted my tenants to be people that we could relate to. In other words, I hear so much of the time where you have tenants that that ruin the houses or trash the houses because they're kind of like not mine and there's a discrepancy between the landlord and a sort of a social discrepancy between the two the tenant and the landlord and so you feel it's sort of an us and them thing but if you have tenants that are basically your peers you have a much better understanding of one another and they took better better care of the houses I could trust them to take care of the houses. So I wasn't getting the phone calls for the tenants, the termites and the toilets, um, you know, all of that stuff or not from the tenants. I mean, I wasn't getting that stuff, right? Because they were peers. I kind of understood how they would take care of the house and they did. And so that's kind of how I got into the business that I'm doing now is I basically, every house that I buy is for someone that's like me. Those are the kinds of the tenants that I want. So I do all executive homes. That's what I specialize in. And not many people talk about that, but we were executives. So everything that I bought was for that type of personality. And my my kind of secret sauce to success is this sort of backwards um, way of looking at real estate. Who was it that I wanted to be tenants first? And then 
I would buy houses. So first it was just my house. But later as I would buy houses, I would buy houses for the kind of people I wanted to do business with, which were my tenants. Does that make sense? Yeah, it absolutely does. Now, when I think about a high-end rental generally, when we talk about it in the space, you might say class A, B, C, mm-hmm. D housing, high-end rental would be A, but it sounds like in in your mind, you're almost targeting a, a double A or an A plus A plus, level. yeah. So I would not say they're all luxury, right? Because my husband and I were still like, we were young and had no money um, when we started, right? But we were both executives. We had a particular kind of neighborhood. It was a, it was still the three three bed you know house, but it was very it was a very nice neighborhood. So when we brought in other young executives, they loved that house. They had children in that home, that sort of thing, right? And now as we're older, we can afford a much nicer home, or we have grown to that, right? So now if I rent out something. It's going to be a much nicer luxury place. So I would say location has always been like A, but it's not like resort type of place, right? Which is what people mostly think of when they think of A plus. But it's, I would say A plus as in when you look at an executive place that I rent, it's very, very nice. And the neighborhood is very nice. Okay. So when I think about your, you're talking about not this A plus resort, but I'm thinking about my market of Richmond, Virginia, where I live. A lot of the houses that kind of strike me in that regard would be maybe close to closer to country clubs or you know mm-hmm. areas like that where there are homes around. It's not a resort, but the surroundings are all very you know, nice, pretty high level. Yes, yes. And I don't own anything in any um, resorts, although we've looked at sort of golf courses or anything like that. Mostly it's higher neighborhoods, so gated communities or something like that. Okay, great. So I think the biggest question, the first question that probably comes to mind for most people, certainly myself, is, okay, those properties are expensive. How in the world do you actually make a return on them? Because it costs a lot to play in that game. It does. Are the rents going to cover everything? Are you going to mm-hmm. you know net out at the end of the day? How do you make it work? Yeah. So when people look at investing in real estate, they have to make a decision on how they're going to make their money in real estate. You know this, right, Taylor? Mm-hmm. You're a cash flow show. So a lot of people that are listening, it's very, very high priority to, to, to look at cash flow. For me, we were a couple of executives making a very nice income. We didn't need the, the, the cash flow, right? right? So we bought and we did what now everybody considers the ultimate sin, but we bought California real estate and carried negative cash flow for the first couple of years, right? Wow. So it's like the opposite of what you guys, you people want to do, right? <laughs> Every all the listeners are like, whoa, that's not. <laughs> so, so for our big executive homes, yes, we take a loss for a little bit. I have a cap on what kind of loss I can sustain, but usually between two, sometimes five years, that's about how long it takes to do cash flow, to get cash flow. However, then the cash flow is just like everybody else. It goes up every year, but it goes up by higher percentages. So your cash flow increases faster, right? So your start is a little bit slow, but your cash flow increases, but also your appreciation. So I'm in an appreciation market. My goal was to retire in 20 years. So for me, I wanted that appreciation to happen fast so that then I could turn it into cash flowing properties once I retired, right? So then I take that equity, 1031 it into a portfolio, and now I've got a huge amount of cash flow. So that was kind of my cash flow strategy. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, it does. I, I think where people really tend to get in trouble is when they go into a situation maybe like this, but they think they're going to somehow cash flow it in the first couple of years. They're going to mm -hmm. squeeze it out or whatever. But you had a very, uh, based on what you're saying, you had a very clear uh, eye on your strategy. Hey, we're going to be negative cash flow for a little while. Mm -hmm. Now, there is risk there. They, okay, now you have to cover that negative cash flow, mm -hmm. but you knew what you were getting into. I knew what I was getting into, and it was a decision. We did not want to have to be taking time out of our work. We were already working 50, 60, 70 hours a week in our jobs. We did not want to be taking time out to be managing real estate. So we bought sort of low-maintenance, low, low um, hands-on real estate. I managed it all myself, but we spent five to 10 hours a month, maybe not even that, on managing the real estate. And we started with $10,000 in our primary now we're well worth, well, it's over 5 million, right? And we did, we did so little, we could still manage our jobs and do all of that. Often when you're in a more of a cash flow market, you can't be that hands off either. That's not always true. If you hire managers, there's lots of different ways to do it. But we made decisions on this was our lifestyle. In California, if I had to hire a manager, I would have gotten seriously negative. We couldn't do that. There were certain people, certain kinds of people I wanted to rent to because it kept it very low maintenance. They liked not having a landlord breathing down their back. They liked not having to get my permission when they wanted to fix things. They wanted to be on their own schedules, right? So they liked that lifestyle. I preferred that lifestyle. And it didn't retire us in 20 years. It retired us in 15, where we could finally, we had enough equity that now we could quit our jobs if we wanted to. We don't because we love our work. But um, well, my husband loved his work. I quit and started doing fun things, <laughs> but <laughs> like doing podcasts and stuff, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Teaching about real estate. But um, we were able to take that money then and then turn it into cash flow. So really, it's all about the plan. You decide what you're going to do. There's always risk, right? We made a series of decisions based on what we knew about the market. In 2008, I lost 50% of the values of my properties. That was scary, wow. mm -hmm. right? But the rents shot up. I may, I gave myself a huge raise that year in <laughs> rents, <clears throat> you know, mm -hmm. but the properties took about five years to come back to even and way surpassed that after that. So because I was in a good market, we were a little bit insulated, even though I took a huge hit, it recovered very quickly. And, and then like every single house that I bought were cash flowing within six months. Awesome. Right. So when you uh, when you talk about this strategy, you know, these days there are a lot of folks out there, you know, myself included, who invest in larger projects using syndication, and I, right. I work with you know some higher end you know tech executives to bring them into to our deals. How would you kind of balance those two, or, or square that circle, however you want to put it, in determining whether syndication is right for you know Mister Smith investor? or this uh, executive rental strategy is right for them? What do you think are the, the determining factors in that equation or calculation? Yeah. You mean as, as far as being, being an actual syndicator? Or, or passively investing in them is what right. I'm driving at. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I've considered being a syndicator several times. I actually own a construction company too. That's one of my fun projects. And so we've looked at syndicating. And there's all sorts of rules around syndication with the SEC and the paperwork and the legal and all of that stuff, right? Mm -hmm. So we decided not, not to syndicate. I like my executive strategy because it's, it's very low touch. 
and very high gratification, both financially as well as with who I'm dealing with, right? Mm -hmm. So we all need to make a decision on what it is that we're wanting to do, what it is that that we have the bandwidth for time-wise, emotionally, and also financially. I also have a ton of money put in other people's syndications because I like the hands-free income that I make on that, right? So I've done three syndications in the last three years. I just kind of keep rolling. I'll put one, 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 and then I'll roll. We're about to roll into another one. We'll probably put in a little more after this construction project is done because I'm a little tight right now. But with syndications, you know, they might pay. What do they pay? Seven, eight, nine, 10% upfront for your preferred, right? Percentage. Mm-hmm. And then you have something on the back end if they refinance, sell it, whatever they do. So you might make between 10 to 20% completely hands-off, right? It's amazing. It might take three years, might take five years, right? Depends on your syndicator. You should know a lot of that up front. Um, with the pandemic, most of the syndicators couldn't perform, not because they didn't want to, not because they weren't hugely skilled, but they couldn't get lumber, for instance, right? There were th- things that just kind of went wrong, right? So it can, depends on, do you want to be hands-on or hands-off? Do you want to feel like you have control over the property or do you totally trust a syndicator? There's pros and cons to everything. And from my perspective, I believe in diversification. I like having my single family homes because I think everybody's going to need them. People are going to need the multifamily, right? Mm -hmm. We know that that's true. And people are going to need commercial, different kinds of commercial. That's changing, right? So kind of take a look at the markets that you're interested in. I like control over my single family homes and my construction company. I also like diversification that I can get in syndication. I have a project that I'm invested in in Georgia. It's a multifamily in a market that's growing, expanding hugely. I am in a syndication project for some storage. I'm in a syndication project for a mobile home. I don't know anything about any of those things, but you know what? I'm invested and diversified into those markets because I'm interested in them, but I'm not interested enough to learn it myself. And I can make really, really good money if the syndicator is really good and I trust that syndicator. Does that make sense? And they've got a proven track record and like that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It does It does make sense. And I like that you looked at that diversification, walked us through uh, that whole process. Now, I'd also, <laughs> going back to your experience through the Great Recession, seeing your uh, values fall by 50%. Yeah, your rents went up, but it's hard to see your values fall that mm-hmm. significantly and you know, not kind of have your, your stomach kind of turn, mm-hmm. right? And now we're talking about one of the advantages of real estate and that it's harder to sell than it is stock. Some, if you have a stock that falls 50%, some people are just going to hit the sell button and get rid of it no matter what, right? Because it's very liquid, right? Right. How did you, but still you can panic sell real estate if you really want Absolutely. to. Absolutely. And a lot avoid, of people did. Yeah, exactly. How did you avoid doing that and, and doing that panic sale and you know, st- stay the course? Mm-hmm. So that's why I talk a lot about bliss. Um, Bliss is all about um, emotional mastery and emotional resilience. So I have a lot of tools. I will say I cried many nights. I couldn't sleep. My stomach turned. But I also have a lot of these sort of mindset strategies that I was able to implement to keep myself stable enough to not do the screaming running thing that so many people did from the from the real estate market and the stock market. I mean, the stock stock market completely crashed too, mm-hmm. right? But it crashed faster, right? Because it happened so much faster in the, in the, but it also recovered faster. That's also true. It's just much more volatile, right? Mm-hmm. 
With real estate, as long as I was able to cover my expenses, I just figured I was in a good market. I had done my research. You don't lose money to yourself. That's true whether you're in um, real estate or in the stock market or in anything. You don't make, you don't lose money to yourself. You also don't make money to yourself, right? Or you get <laughs> yeah. cash flow or dividends, whichever it is. So it was really about, okay, I have to hold. I don't have any choices. I'm not going to take these losses. It was multiple millions of dollars. I was not going to take that loss and my rents were keeping up. There were a few sacrifices that I had to make. My husband also lost his job. We were no longer able to afford the home we were living in. It was my dream home. And I had to rent it out my dream home. Wow. Which was heartbreaking. And we could only afford to move into a little three-bedroom, two-bath townhouse dump. And when I say that, I'm not kidding. The whole house smelled like dog pee and poop. Oh. It was spray The whole interior was spray-painted gray, including like the the um appliances i mean it was it was disgusting i went from my dream home to that but i remodeled it put about eighty five thousand dollars into it and it was livable not ideal but it was what we could do because i wanted to hold all my real estate and i needed to have that cushion and this is something that we need to really keep in mind don't over leverage right everything that we had was at 80%. I never over leveraged to more than that, except for the very first purchase that we did on our primary residence. But then you had to live somewhere anyways, right? Mm -hmm. I didn't over leverage. And I made sure that I created a budget where we had um, the ability to sustain issues. If I had a vacancy, so I only had, at the time, I think I had 10 properties. So if one went vacant, 10% of my income disappeared. Right. I needed to be able to cover that. Right. Fortunately, I've never had a problem where houses stay empty because the locations are good. So normally I, I might lose a month, but I don't lose much. Usually I don't even lose a month. I might lose a week because I want to clean it, you know, something like that. But we set ourselves up, even though my husband had a new job, he took a 30% pay cut. Things were rough. Right. But we made some sacrifices. Five years later, we were sitting back on top again. So it was fine. But so, so this is some of the things to really keep in mind is first of all, don't panic. Second, you don't lose money until you sell. And third, you need to make adjustments sometimes. You can't just kind of have it all. You know, sometimes we have to make some sacrifices to make our lives work. That could be a, a, a tough pill to swallow, but definitely wise. Uh, so mindset mentality is, is huge in real estate investing. And this idea of blissful investing, I think, is very interesting. And it can be easy to know that mindset is important, but difficult to practice in reality yes. and to remember in the moment mm -hmm. to, to get your mind in the right place. And how do you like exercise the, the blissful investing, you know, uh, lifestyle or process or mentality, however you look at it? How do you remind yourself yeah. of that? So bliss is really a habit or our mindset is really a habit. We create it over time. Um, we're committed to it or we're not. It is really easy to be like, yeah, I know that stuff and not implement. I mean, most of us are like that. So you have to kind of create the habit. So I wrote a book called Choose Bliss, The Power and Practice of Joy and Contentment. You can get it on Amazon and it talks about all of the techniques that I, as a coach, I used to be an executive coach, as a coach taught my execs. And also that I use in my life to create habits of being blissful. And then it doesn't mean that you don't stray 
but you've got those tools. You know, it's kind of like working out. During the holidays, you stop working out, right? And you put on all this weight. Mm-hmm. Oh, I know. Right? But then, in uh, you know, hopefully January, whatever, when it, you're like, <laughs> oh, yeah, I know that I should do that. And I know how this works, right? Like, it's going to be hard for the cu- first couple of weeks. I'm going to hate it. I'm not going to want to do it. I'm not in the habit anymore, but I'm going to do it because I know what it does for me. And then you get back into that habit. Some people some people drop off. They've got two weeks. That was hard. They don't want to do it anymore, right? But if it's a, a part of your life, you've already created the habit. You've already created the intention and seen the benefits. You can reestablish that habit. So really creating bliss in that mindset is a habit. There are specific techniques that you can use, and those are in my book. However, I do want to give you guys is one that you can use every single day. Does that awesome. sound fun? Love it. Okay, good. <laughs> okay, this is my favorite one. It's called Stop, Drop, and Breathe. <laughs> and so what you do is when you're in the middle of a stressful situation or something that will get you out of your bliss, normally what happens is it's not the situation, but it's a story that you create inside your head about that situation. So let's say, for instance, you got cut off on the freeway, right? So you get cut off on the freeway and there's a couple of stories you can create. The one story, I can't believe that person cut me off. They almost hit me. They almost caused an accident. Blah, blah, blah. We all know that one, right? The other story is, wow, someone's having a bad day, right? Which story you create <laughs> takes practice. But if you're creating the other freaked out story, you do your stop, drop, and breathe, right? So what you do is you stop. You want to interrupt the story. So I'll, I'll literally snap my fingers or say, Monica, stop, right? Then you drop down into your body, take all of that brain power, drop it into your body, into your heart, and then take like three slow, deep breaths. The deep breath, just imagine that breath going all the way down and tickling the back of your belly button and then let it out. Three breaths. And now kind of take a look around. How are you feeling? How are you reacting? Anything that you say from that place or experience from that place is going to be completely different and much more balanced, and much more blissful. And one thing I will say about that is hard because if you're pissed off, you want to be pissed off. Yes, (laughs) that's true. It's so many of us, right? So the first couple of times it may not work because you're breathing so shallowly because you're pissed off, right? So just stick with it. Two, three, four, five times, maybe even 10 times, you'll start to see, oh, this is better, right? You don't have, you have no idea how much heavy breathing happened during the 2008 thing where I lost all that money. There was an awful lot of times where it was just about sitting still and breathing deep so I didn't freak out and I didn't make bad choices. I didn't put bad renters in my home. I didn't sell a house because it was underwater. I didn't look at the more, I didn't go on Zillow and look at the values drop again. I didn't do those things because there was an awful lot of stop, stop, drop and breathe. The story would happen and I would just turn it off. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I think a lot of times in life, the the situations we find ourselves in, sometimes they feel catastrophic and important. And you know, sometimes they are. They are, yeah. But most of the time they're actually not. And the story we're telling ourselves in our head is only kind of making it worse. Mm-hmm. And we'd be better served to just remember that and try not to treat everything as though it is a catastrophe or as, as important of the end of the world. Again, sometimes it is. Sometimes things are really bad. But even then, is freaking out going to really make a big difference and, and help the situation or just make it worse? Yeah. You know, I had a guy on my show, Hal Elrod, 
Oh, he's a friend of mine. That's you know a big him? get. Oh, yeah. 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 You, have you ever heard his show on what he says about this? I don't believe he's, I have. So I love what he says about this. You get into something and it is catastrophic and you have a right to be mad or you have a right to be upset or you have a right to feel whatever, victimized, I hate that word, but you know, whatever it is that you're feeling, you have a right to that. And I agree with him. You don't have a right to bury yourself there. And so what he says, because that doesn't serve you, it doesn't serve your life. So you have a right to your feelings. So what Hal will do, he gives himself five minutes to feel whatever it is, and then he'll say, can't change that. All you've got is what you can look forward to. I will admit I can't do five minutes. If I'm pissed, I want a day. (laughs) (laughs) So you choose your time. How long do you want to feel that bad? How long do you want to feel that bad? And then in that moment, when you're done, can't change that. All I got is what's happening next. Yeah. Yeah, right? that's true. That's a good point. And it's it's tough to remember, but it's important to work this muscle while we're not upset so mm-hmm. we can be ready for those times uh, when it happens. So that's exactly that. right. I love that. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Manuka, right now we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. The first step to growing your wealth is tracking your wealth, income, spending, and everything else about your finances. You can start tracking your wealth for free and get six free months of wealth advisory with personal capital by going to escapingwallstreet.com and using our link. Create your free account today and automate the way you track your money. Personal capital is my preferred way to track my finances, and now we're making that available for listeners. Terms and conditions apply. See the personal capital website for details. Once again, to get the offer, go to escapingwallstreet.com and use our link. Back to the show. All right. I've got three questions I ask every guest on the show. Are you ready? I am ready. Great. First one, what is the best investment you ever made other than in your education? My primary residence, the very first one, it just got me in the market and it was so, it was hard, right? Because we didn't have the money. We had to get a roommate to afford it. So the whole thing was hard, but it got us set up for where we are today. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. A lot of folks credit their first deal as being the best one, the most important one because it got them started. That's a great answer. Yeah. So we had the best investment. Now we go to the other side of that coin, the worst investment. What is the worst investment you ever made? So a little brag, I've never made a bad real estate investment. (laughs) I've never lost money, even though I could have in 2008. I've had a beautiful run with real estate. But the worst worst investment I ever made is I bought Bitcoin at 63,000. Oh, ouch. (laughs) For anybody Ouch. that knows that, oh dear, I am. I did call DOS, cost dollar dollar cost average and whatever. It's still falling. Whatever, but that's been painful. We'll see what happens. Well, <laughs> hopefully, it wasn't too big of a bet. It wasn't. It wasn't. It was a baby, tiny little. I want to check this out. I want to know what's going on. But I will say that was so far has proven to be the worst. <laughs> Well, you don't lose until you sell, right? Like that's right. That's exactly right. My favorite question here at the end of the show is what is the most important lesson you've learned in business and investing? (laughs) You know, so many of us have goals and dreams. 
and we learn and we spend a lot on our own education, which is so important. It is the single most important thing that we can do. But nothing happens until you take action. You have to actually get out there and do something. So true. So true. Well, Monique, I want to thank you for joining us today and sharing all these lessons. I also want to thank you. I'll break the fourth wall here. We actually had to reschedule last minute because we had a bit of a, a cat pet emergency on uh, my end. It's all taken care of now, just a little emergency surgery, but uh, everybody's okay. I want to thank you for that flexibility and my for sharing pleasure. those lessons today. If folks will reach out, if they want to get in touch with you, if they want to learn more about what you're up to, if they want to find your book or anything like that, where can they track you down? Go to blissfulinvestor.com. Awesome. Well, thank you once again for joining us today. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars if you don't mind. I appreciate that so much, you guys. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcast ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys. That gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street casino along with us. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. Right now, I hope you have a great rest of your day. We'll talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye.